We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Due. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. Our guests will explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of those details about the show over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now, today we will be continuing our look at the G.I. Joe disavowed era with Arashikage Showdown from Devil's Jew in May 2000. And five. And joining me to talk about it is my co-host. It's a guy who has never had a showdown about any sort of rash. It's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Wow. Uh, thank you, Mark. Hello, listeners. I'm glad we were able to clear the air about that um, that ongoing saga. So this story comes to us from Josh Blaylock, at, credited as Story. I was going to say writer, but I think, you know, let's let's leave it at that story. And while we're talking about Josh Blaylock, I actually reached out to him to get some recollections from him on this project. And here's what he had to say. Arashikage Showdown was a, a, a self-contained uh, sort of Elseworlds project that we did. You know, at the time, this was the height of our G.I. Joe license. Just, you know, we were killing it. You know, just every books were coming out every month. It was, you know, we were just crushing it. And I wanted to do something different because manga at that time was this thing that had just started to really blow up in, in comic books and started to bring in new, completely different audiences. Um, you really have to put yourself where the, where the industry was at that time. So, um, you know, I, it focused on Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and the whole clan and it dealt with a magical amulet that the, the clan had been secretly protecting for centuries given to them by the sun goddess um, I don't really remember a lot about the process of working on it, but I do mostly remember um, it sent me down a really fun rabbit hole, not only studying um, the real history of ninja and how that relates to Japanese uh, politics and, and the landscape, but just the entire history of Japan itself and, and its military culture going back to the samurai. So that's, uh, yeah, it, it was just a really fun book and I'm flattered to have you guys reviewing it all these years later. Thank you, Josh. Big thanks for that contribution and your support of the podcast. Now, continuing the credits. Next up, Art, Chris Lee, L-I-E, with Tony Tamai, Anthony Spey, Ramanda Kamaga, and Dove McHarg. Marshall Dillon is on letters with editors Mark Powers, Mike O'Sullivan, graphic design Evan Sweet, Marshall Dillon. And cover is Susan Lau. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. I love the cover. It is digitally painted. Snake Eyes is um, holding an Uzi in one hand and uh, away from us and thrusting a sword uh, toward us. Uh, Behind him is a uh, Japanese temple and there is some foliage, and uh, we're looking up at the building. We see Snake Eyes only from the knees up, 
So he fills a good two thirds of the cover. And then there's um, beautifully painted sky behind the building. And the color scheme for all of this is, uh, is sort of autumn. It's autumn sunset. I mean, even though you look at Snake Eyes and you think he's in a black costume, or maybe that's a dark gray costume, you know, if you color pick this in a program like Photoshop, there's a lot of green, there's a lot of orange, there's a lot of uh, desaturated brown red. And Snake Eyes very much agrees with both the foliage, the building, and the sky. It's really nicely done. And yet Snake Eyes pops because uh, there's just a little bit of some highlighting on his sort of top and bottom edges where the, the sunlight would be hitting him. Uh, the logo's cool. Arashikage Showdown is up top. A small G.I. Joe is on the bottom. Uh, it also says Volume 1 on the bottom. Somewhat optimistically. Yes, there was no Volume 2. Um, and we should ask some people if any work was done on a Volume 2. Uh, this format, so this is this is digest sized, and um, I don't I don't actually have a like proper you know nine dollar and ninety nine cent like viz manga volume uh, in my other hands to make a precise comparison you know like Dragon Ball Z or Naruto. Uh, so offhand, I would say this is manga size. Yeah, it's yeah, it's described as digest sized, five inches by seven point five inches, black and white, one hundred and twenty two pages, and it was part of uh, Devil's Due D three digest line, which included some other volumes uh, in that size format. Apparently, uh, misplaced and Penguin Bros included. Uh, yes, there's a there's a listing of the other five volumes in this format on the inside back cover uh, oh, of, yes. of this volume. Patrick the Wolf Boy, Misplaced, Penguin Brothers, uh, Shades of Blue, excuse me, four other, four other volumes coming soon to bookstores and comic shops near you. And the cover price of this black and white Joe book was $10.95. And it's a nice object. I, I like holding it and flipping through it. Um, I'd love it if it were thicker. I'd love it if it was another, you know, 50 pages. Gonna, I'm going to uh, jump back for a moment. I believe uh, traditional, you know, $10 manga volumes are five by seven. So this is, this is just about that size. Um, one last comment about the cover. As much as I like the drawing and the painting, the composition does feel there's some negative space up and left of Snake Eyes and to the right of him under a sword. And not that this needs bursts of text, but I do feel like when sort of balancing places for my eyes to rest, but also populating the image with, quote, value, whether that's a burst of text or some other character or prop, I do feel like one or two more things could be happening in this cover. In terms of technical drawing skill, Snake Eyes' visor is not symmetrical. The three grooves that are cut in it on the left side huh. come closer to the center and are also sort of a little lower on that plane. So I don't think Snake Eyes is like precisely looking at us straight on such that you could do a like precise mirror image comparison of the left and right halves of his head. But, you know, he's like 99 and a half degrees perfectly on axis and um, 
uh, his visor is uh, a weak point in this drawing. The back cover loses some points because it is a repeat, though a zoom in, of the front cover. And I think unless you're going to treat it really differently, like apply a filter where it's black and white or it's like Benday dots, you know, like a printing screen, like when you look up close at old comics or uh, something like that. I actually would have rather the back cover just be black with the text and the barcode that it does have or, you know, like one panel from the issue. When a when a book repeats the cover image as its back cover, that says to me slightly amateur or sort of ran out of time mistake. And uh, that's that's a bummer because the front cover is so nice here. And I like the package overall. Very good. Let's do one more thing. Um, okay. Although, uh, do we have any confirmation on how to pronounce this name? You said Chris Lee. I had thought it might be Chris Lai, L-I-E. Yeah, you probably it's probably Lai, isn't it? We don't know. And apologies to uh, this, this talented artist uh, and his friends and fans if we're getting it wrong. So you pointed out that um, there are four additional artists listed. And I think what that means is they're helping with uh, gray tones. Maybe they're doing some uh, background inking or uh, drawing of whole panels where something less important is happening, like it's just a hand, you know, throwing a throwing star or something. I do note that on the spine of the book, Blaylock and Lie, artist Chris Lie, uh, are credited, as is the first of those four, let's say, art assistants, Tony Tamai, which might suggest that of the four people who did additional artwork, uh, he did. Um, the more important part of it or or more of it mm-hmm. um, but we may never know i also i said sto- i was said story then i was about to say writer J- just blaylock and then i corrected myself and left it a story we know from uh, his work on the early issues of gi joe from image that he worked on with stephen kerf that he did uh he provided some some pretty rough layouts for for that and it's entirely possible that he may have provided some layouts as part of his writing style, you know, as a tool for for his his writing as part of this. And there was a couple of pages that that I noticed that I thought I, I could quite easily believe that that there's a bit of Josh Blaylock DNA in there. It's um what the one that made me think that the most was probably that page with the ninjas sort of abseiling is not the right word um sort of uh, on the on the ropes. What's the what's what would the word be for for going on the ropes like Tomex and Zamot down um oh, uh, buildings? Zip lining? Yeah, like zip lining down from one building to the next to attack. And there's a page with them sort of dangling down from uh, some handlebars on the on the ropes. So um I think I think this is a reasonable guess that Blaylock did layouts or some layouts. I also think it is more likely that Blaylock did not. And here are my two very circumstantial uh, evidentiary reasons. One, this is 2005. Blaylock is now in a busier part of his history with G.I. Joe in that six-year span. And when we interviewed him, he told us, you know, he, he part of him, you know, handing over the monthly book to Jerwa was because there was just so much to do with the company. Also, um, Chris Lai went to, uh, attended the Bandung Institute of Technology, which is a school in Indonesia, 
for architecture. And I think it's I think it's possible that Blaylock just sort of, you know, handed over the story and then did the script or did the full script, just sort of leaning on uh, Lai's um, uh, talents. So Chris Lai now in 2023 is a, is a concept artist and founded Caravan Studio, which provides uh, movie visuals for uh, Netflix and Star Wars and Warner Brothers. Most recent, re- recently, that studio worked on Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which whatever you think of the movie, like that movie came out four weeks ago, and that was a big deal. Uh, Lai has designed uh, toys like Transformers. And after he attended uh, Bandung Institute, he got a Fulbright scholarship and went to SCAD, the um, Savannah College uh, of Art and Design, which is in Georgia in America. Um, SCAD has a sequential art, that is comics, undergraduate degree, and at the time was, I'm sure, the only school in the country that did. Schools had illustration programs, they had comics classes, but SCAD had the only comics major. It's um, where Robert Atkins uh, went as well. Uh, Right, right. And uh, I'm looking at an article from thejakartapost.com and... um, And indeed, and indeed, Mike O'Sullivan who is credited as one of the editors on this book, uh, also went to SCAD. Right. So. Okay. So um, doing this doing this timeline a little, uh, uh, a little out of order, um, attending the pre- prestigious art school for comics artists opened up many opportunities for Chris. He had the chance to meet top artists and learn from them in person. Two were Klaus Jansen and David Mazzucchelli. Quote, they were invited by my campus for a comic art forum. Uh, Both Jansen's New York and Mazzucchelli is um, like New York or or Massachusetts or Rhode Island. Quote, they were invited by my campus for a comic art forum during which the students could show their portfolios. I can't remember uh, what Klaus said about my work, but what I learned from Mazzucchelli was his innovative way in producing artwork. Unquote. At the school, he also secured an internship at the Chicago-based independent comic book publisher Devils Do Publishing. Uh, from there, his career in the international comic industry took off. He was trusted to, be, to become the designer for the new G.I. Joe series while getting work to draw illustrations for Archie Comics. Um, and then he, he formed this studio, Caravan, in 20, 2008. So... What are we missing? Did did he work on Sigma Six? Oh right, yeah. I guess the that that would be the main series at this this kind of time. It's it's possible that you know quote GI Joe series designer on a GI Joe series is the way that a newspaper that's a little unfamiliar with comics might actually describe the artist of a GI Joe graphic novel, a, a comic book. Yeah, it looks like he's credited as an artist on the Sigma Six comic book. Okay. Uh, I have all those issues on the other side of the, uh, just five feet away yeah. from me. But I'm... Yeah, it looks like he's the main artist of um, the IJ Sigma 6. Okay. Devil's G. Um, and what, that's 2005? So that's around the, around the same time as, okay. Yeah. I was just looking at an article about Lie, and it says that the G.I. Joe Sigma 6 toy line was designed by Chris Lie and sort of gave him his big break into the industry. And uh, aside from the original toy design, 
Lai worked on the packaging, style guide, store promotion art, and comic books and DVD cover. Um, that's that's incredible. As Joe fans, I think we want some kind of consistency, and I think we've always been delighted and confused that the comic is so different from the show and the toy. You know, like as little kids, and it's it's very cool that for a 2005 relaunch, Hasbro would have the 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 planning to have one artist, a style artist, be so involved in all of them that you would get this consistency across the different. Um, mm. uh, brands. You know what I'm seeing? I'm on uh, I'm on generalsjoesreborn.com. Uh, there's an interview with Chris Lai from huh. 2009. And how did you get involved? Question. How did you get involved in the design process for the Sigma 6 toy line? Chris Lai. It was back when I was an intern at Devil's Due. Hasbro asked Devil's Due to do some sketches for the next toy line. I did some sketches. They liked it. Maybe it's because my Asian-influenced drawing style was what Hasbro was looking for. The next day, I started drawing the turnaround for Heavy Duty Duke Snake Eyes based on my inputs by Hasbro. They were looking for a an anime influence. Uh, did you do the art for all of the 8-inch figures? Not all of them. I started to draw the packaging art somewhere in the middle of Wave 2. Cool. But, but that's amazing as well because, like... I think uh, when we talk to Josh Blaylock, he, I, th- I think, you know, he maybe maybe his mind goes to some of the the more negative aspects of the the relationship when it wasn't working quite as as well as maybe as maybe it could have done. But but this, you know, that just goes to show the, you know, the strength, uh, it, its height of that relationship where Hasbro are relying so heavily on creative from Devil's Due to to inform the the line and i think it's around this time that, that i think sort of brandon joe was also doing a couple of like uh some of the writing for the for the comics that came with the toys and and doing some of the file cards and stuff like this so this is probably like in, in this era must be kind of towards the the height of the relationship working well yeah oh chris Lai drew the cover to uh gi joe america's elite number 25 the cover with every joe uh so okay that that cover held for a brief amount of time the the record for the most characters on a comic book before being toppled by issue three hundred and Jamie Sullivan. Right, right. Um, so uh, Justin at Generals Joe's asks, "How hard was it to produce that cover? What kind of research did you have to do?" It's pretty hard. It took me two weeks to finish it. I penciled it at twenty inches by twenty eight. Thank God my, that my beloved editor, Michael Sullivan, was the one who did all the research and collect the reference. He provided me with everything I need. He's the best. And then another question. You also worked on the Sigma 6 comics as well as the packaging art. Which did you like working on more? Answer, both of them. The comic gave me more opportunity to understand how the characters act and move, while the art for packaging gave me more opportunity to draw characters with different costumes and weapons that are not in the comic. It's also kind of refreshing for me in the middle of drawing the comic. Hmm. So bouncing around. So thank you, Justin Bell, for that. Um, all right. So um, this is p- part of why I wanted to have this um, uh, background on him is because sometimes we talk about artists on G.I. Joe uh, that we're not familiar with and we just sort of fumble around. Other times we interview them. But um, knowing his background gave me an appreciation of the artwork in this because all of the all the buildings look good even though this is this is much more of a book about 
uh, you know, bodies in space, you know, like the human form and action and, you know, people on motorcycles and, and, uh, and punching uh, and, and flipping. And I think the art is good. There's a lot of detail. It is very much a black and white, quote, manga uh, graphic novel with, uh, you know, speed lines and a lot of very, very precisely drawn gear, you know, like belts and straps and lots of gray tones, lots of mechanical gray tones. And I actually think there's, it's too much of that. I think there's a, there's an approach to black and white comics, which is if you're going to use mechanical tones, like little dots or little, you know, diagonal lines to make it like a medium gray or a light gray or dark gray, that you can sort of replace the effect of color by having many, many different grays. And on the one hand, the art is really satisfying here because Lai and the team put so much into it. On the other hand, uh, some pages get a little busy. About halfway through, I start having a hard time telling some ninja apart from other ninja once they're all in costume. And I actually think that the 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 figure work and the sort of facial acting is good. And the like characters drawn in perspective, like believably someone's standing like on a floor in a room or like jumping towards the camera. I think all that's done well. Uh, it's not the best. Um, it sometimes feels like a little characters are like a little, little bit too short or a space is like a little bit too, um, uh, the perspective is a little bit too pinched. It's, it's quite good. But uh, what, do, uh, Mark? What do you think of what do you think of the art? Yeah, I mean, I I do I, I like a lot of it. I think it's quite pleasing. Sometimes sometimes I had a little bit of trouble tracking which character was was which in, in part because you don't have the the shorthand of the the color to <laughs> you hear that an ice cream van's going past. <laughs> you don't you don't have the visual shorthand of the the color sort of letting you know that scarlet has got red hair and you know so so that, that you don't have that but the, the art for the most part is yeah it's quite pleasant is i'm not sort of i'll get onto this i'm not sort of necessarily a massive man fan of sort of like the manga style generally but but i, I found it you know that this for what it was trying to be worked worked well i definitely take your point about the the gray tones that uh a lot a lot of the time it, it seems to work well but a lot an, an, an awful lot of the time as well it seems like there's just too much in the way of tones which if everything is colored in gray then then you kind of lose lose some of the the effect that you know you'd want perhaps some of the foreground characters to to pop more against a, a contrasting gray or or white background for example but but generally I, yeah, I, I thought the art was quite nicely done. Except for the actual outlining of every character. You know, the actual outline around the, you know, camouflage on Nunchuck's sleeve or the actual outline of, uh, of of a gun or a rope. There is no black in this book. You know, the, well, okay, okay there's, I see one panel. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that. I see, all right, let me, let me rephrase that. There is, there is. A lot of dark gray in this book. There is right. very little black. Like, yeah, like, like spotted black. Like, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's very little Shading. solid black in this comic. Uh, the night sky, not black, dark gray. And yeah. in the early pages, on, on, page, on page 11, 
which is our left side where Scarlet is holding the little like ninja toy on the when she's on the back of the motorcycle. I'm seeing a tiny bit of a moray pattern in Scarlet's hair, which is an effect that you'd get from the the like distance between the dots that make up the tone of her hair. Uh, some of them print like slightly, slightly bigger, and some of them print slightly, slightly smaller, and it it almost vibrates. And you get this when uh, I, something like the mechanical tone has been applied on the original artwork or in Photoshop, and then over several stages, you're like resizing or reformatting the artwork so that it actually prints at the size that you want. And uh, you know, uh, there's there's a moray pattern on the table of contents, excuse me, on the on the credits page, on the very first page of the book. You see where the sort of dots that are pushing the cover, which is now in a light gray, like further back. Some of the dots are like darker than others. And here, just as a quick experiment, turn to like any three pages in this book and ask yourself if when there's a head and shoulders shot of someone just talking, would it give your eyes a little place to rest if there was no background behind those head and shoulders, if it was just white, just the white of the paper? Because that happens... There are some panels where there's no background, there's no door or wall or like nighttime sky, but it's still like a light gray mechanical tone. So I think my word for the artwork here is a little overdone. I, I, I've used this example before, um, you know, the comic strip Doonesbury, which has been running for decades. It's a political strip. In Doonesbury, in a daily, a daily is always three panels or it's always four panels. And the, the Sunday strip is always uh, six or seven. And one panel in every single Doonesbury strip is two silhouettes talking to each other. Like if the three panels are like someone talking and then like the outside of the White House and a word balloon over it, and then like two people talking, one of those panels is going to be something purely black and something purely white. And Gary Trudeau does this either to save time or to give your eye a little variety or both. And in, in Arashikage Showdown, every single panel is always drawn to its full amount of realistic detail. There's never a panel where Lai drops out some of the information for like emphasizing something else. And it's very cool. Uh, it can get a little bit much. Um, shall I do a quick plot breakdown for... Yes this book. Okay, right. Snake Eyes, Jinx, Nunchuck and Scarlet are in Japan, led there by a mysterious message. They are attacked by the Omikana clan of ninjas by mistake, led by a man named Soga. Soga tells the history of the lost scroll of Tokagura, which could lead them to the jewel of Amaterasu. Before he's killed by a sniper, Soga gives them the scroll. The Joe ninjas follow the scroll's direction to a temple where Snake Eyes performs a cutter, which grants them access to the jewel. But in a ninja heel turn, Soga returns from the dead. He faked his dead and steals the jewel. He was the baddie all along. Later, after Kamakura and Storm Shadow have joined the others, they attack Soga, the leader of the Nichira clan of ninjas at his headquarters. After a major battle between the ninja clans, the Nichira are defeated. Storm Shadow takes the jewel of Amat Arasu to a place near the top of Mount Fuji to hide it. 
using special dual magic to make sure that it is hidden and never found again. Top down. I kind of went into this not remembering it at all. I, I have a feeling that at the time I might have even just skim, skim read this and not paid it a huge amount of attention because uh, I think I had a bias against it. <laughs> I, I thought thought going to it, uh, I this is probably not going to be for me and I don't think I'm going to like it. But actually, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought the you know the the story was nicely done, the the art was uh, solid, and uh, and it was a lot of uh, fun. And sometimes you feel like stories have to have a lot of weight to them, you know, to have to have be meaty and you know poignant and mean something. But you know, sometimes a, f a story can just be fun, and that's and that's good too. And that's what. Uh, I felt like it, it did for me that it was just a, it was a fun ninja jaunt and and that I didn't need to take it all too seriously. I I think of this book in this particular category, which is G.I. Joe one-offs that are attempts to try something new mm -hmm. and that don't work. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I mean, sort of business-wise, right? Oh, right. Um, okay. You know, there isn't another one, right? There yep. isn't a volume two. And that are mostly forgotten and are sort of creatively, you know, they're, they're, they're good. They're okay. The, the, the two other things that I put in this category are the IDW G.I. Joe original graphic novel. Is it Neo-Noir? Uh, I think it's future noir. Future it? noir, thank you. And the uh, the the Ninja Battles DVD, <laughs> right? Which uh, came out in uh, two thousand and four, two thousand four, and it was in a it was in a box set, and it came with uh, a comic and one, two, three, four, five uh, figures, and. I have never watched this DVD because a friend of mine watched it and said, it's not really animated. It's just sort of, uh, it's like an animatic. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, they made a, they made like a reel out of comics panels. So there's a lot of still images with like sound effects. And I have never up until today for this episode, I've never read this Devil's Do uh, Digest because I think I flipped through it a few times at my friend's house or, you know, at a store many, many years ago and thought, oh, you know, this isn't for me. This is trying to get sort of a, like a newer or younger person into or back into G.I. Joe. This isn't, I mean, it, it doesn't exclude me, but this isn't primarily for people who were already reading the Devil's Due issues who had already read the, the Marvel issues. Um, so my top down is... Sort of cynically, I'm I'm ready to not care, but actually, ever since you and I remembered that we should read it for this show, I've been really looking forward to it because, man, the pressure's off. Um, <laughs> it not only does it not have to really fit in the sort of Hama Marvel continuity, it doesn't have to fit into the Devil's Due continuity. Technically, it does. Uh, there's nothing in it that you know betrays the Devil's Due continuity, but you know, and, it is, you know, and it's it's building it's building on the likes of Jinx, 
living in Japan and, and sort of having that sort of black sort of sneak suits uh, and, you know, there's the Storm Shadow Devil's Due design and stuff. So so it sort of definitely sort of fits within what Devil's Due have established in the the look and the characterizations and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think it, you know, in the same reason that uh, G.I. Joe World on Fire, written by Paul Allure, was a very good idea to try something different, to try and get an audience that might not be interested in, quote, regular G.I. Joe or any version of G.I. Joe that had been around for you know more than five years. This is This is something that sort of anyone can come to and dip their toe into and take or leave. You know, if this had been really popular and they'd done two more of them, I would be really excited because, you know, even bad G.I. Joe stories or G.I. Joe stories I'm not interested in you know, I want, I want there to be more to sort of, you know, grow the brand and uh, entertain people. Top down, this was a a pleasant read. I wasn't skimming it. I was reading it. But because it's so light, in terms of sort of story, I didn't have to pay my bestest attention to it. But I did have to focus on the artwork because there are a lot of characters in it. And the final you know, fifth of the book gets really busy with people. Many, many, many people. The other thing that this sort of reminds me of, it sort of looks ahead to the Snake Eyes movie. Yeah. It doesn't use any of those characters. It doesn't have, you know, Snake Eyes as an Asian guy with black hair who talks. It's not an origin for Snake Eyes, but in the sense that it is... The the other thing that this reminds me of, and I think this is part of why I wanted to read it this week for this episode, it reminds me of Snake Eyes Declassified, the Brandon Jarawa miniseries, where it's like, is your version of G.I. Joe more ninjas than have we got the story for you? Here's a movie that's just the ninjas. Here's a miniseries that's just the ninja stuff in chronological order. Here's an OGN that's black and white and small and drawn in a manga style, right? And so um, this sort of like cottage, not industry, but this like cottage, this little slice of the G.I. Joe pie that's not about people in green back on base, you know, like fixing a tank, you know, or like, well, we're flying through the Himalayas and we've got some CIA guy with us who we don't know or trust. And he's telling us we have to rescue this hostage. It's like, no, 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 no. It's Japan. And cherry blossoms and swords <laughs> and that tattoo and uh, like and people. <laughs> one of the reasons why the ninja stuff, when there gets to be too much ninja stuff, I think there's too much ninja stuff. One of the sort of symbols for me is when characters who are ninja keep saying the word ninja. <laughs> and I don't know any ninja, so I don't know if that's realistic. But let's take a an analogy. Uh, recently, I've been watching some samurai films, some Japanese samurai films from the 50s and 60s. And the samurai in the films don't keep saying, like, I'm a samurai. Come, samurai. You know, they they sort of say the same thing without those words. You know, it's like, I'm an honorable warrior. Come on, everyone. And uh, sometimes when the ninja in G.I. Joe keep referring to, like, 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 let's ninja on out of here. Or like, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Scarlet, you're a ninja, but you're not a ninja ninja. So can you ninja on out of here so we can ninja this door open and ninja the ninja ninja? It's like th- this word is starting to lose some of its 
you know, coolness. And in fact, in fact, um, uh, in uh, the net in the Marvel Netflix Daredevil and Iron Fist and Defenders, uh, it seems like all the characters go to great lengths when they're describing the hand. I'm talking about the TV show, not the Marvel comics, to not use the word ninja. They just say the hand, the hand. These like ancient warriors or a clan or a conspiracy, right? And they're definitely ninja. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I don't know, Tim, what your mileage is like on on manga more more generally. It, most of my reading and collections uh, are sort of not manga. I think you know, it, probably it's a stereotype, but it's probably a fair stereotype that that sort of the the you know hardcore comic, you know, Marvel superheroes reader and your manga reader uh fairly different demographics you know the sort of not too much crossover between the audiences and and that's probably part of the reasoning of of doing something like this of trying to to tap into that manga reading uh audience but but you know i have read some manga and uh it was quite fun to to see uh the team lean leaning into some manga isms and and sort of not just trying not just telling this like a regular issue of the the devil's due monthly series but just drawn in a slightly different style it, it is definitely kind of leaning into the the elements that make uh manga manga like like food sort of lingering on um uh some storm shadows nice dinner <laughs> like uh the comet some comedy moments like uh there was this i think someone at some point it sort of gets a bit shocked and looks like they've wet their uh, trousers um there's there's sort of some of that kawaii cuteness with uh with scarlet buying a little trinket at the airport um, these these kind of things and and which made it sort of feel like actually you know they're, they're making an effort for it to be you know more in the style of manga than just a than just purely a, 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 a visual style my manga consumption it's it's pretty narrow. I'm interested in uh, Tatsumi's alternative stories that Drawn and Quarterly has published. I have read Akira, and uh, I will read anything that Tezuka writes and draws. And his Phoenix, which is sadly out of print right now, is some of my favorite comics of all time, right? It's like G.I. Joe Special Missions is my desert island uh, comic, but if I could pick three or five series... <laughs> Tezuka's Phoenix would definitely be uh, in there, like you know, de- and deceptively uh, simple art. So um, the the more mainstream or popular stuff that this GI Joe story might be better compared to, um, you know, the the manga stuff that I think of, you know, right now is the stuff that's really popular and has been really popular for the last five or ten years, and connects with a game a show a movie so you know one piece naruto dragon ball um pokemon and you know we we keep those sort of main series in stock in my store as best we can um so it's funny you mentioned the the sort of cute bit with scarlet um with the trinket that she bought because i actually was going to give that scene, which if you are counting is on page 11, I was going to give that the Jay Cordray No, No, No Devil's Do Award 
for getting <laughs> for getting Scarlet wrong. If you're new to our show, Jay Cordray has been a uh, host of many of our Devils Do episodes, and he and I have both um, regretted when um, a writer in the Devils Do run gets Scarlet's characterization wrong, and or or gets a female on the Joe team overly emotional and she cries when we don't see any men crying. Uh, you know, she's on the. Another problem I have with this scene is that they're just having this whole conversation on the back of a motorcycle and motorcycles are loud and they're driving it, I don't know, 50 miles an hour and the wind is blowing by and you'd need to yell, you know, like, like if Mark, if you and I are standing next to a helicopter, I would not sound like this. Mark, what a fun trinket we just bought. I'm glad we're meeting in person. Let's record an episode, right? I'd be like, Mark, right, exactly. So I thought I thought that bit was dumb. I I I had a slight niggle with this one, and and that was it, and that was that if you're on a motorbike, I think um you you don't drive it one handed while looking over your shoulder. That sounds like a a recipe for disaster. I, I mean, you you in 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 the sort of coolest GI Joe way possible, absolutely, Snake Eyes would drive a motorcycle one handed because someone's attacking him. But yes, to put his hand up to sort of say like, yes, I will take that fun trinket from you, betrothed, or no, 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 put that toy back in your bag. We'll continue this conversation later. The little like hand gesture Snake Eyes does. Um, the other thing I didn't like about this scene is uh, this is now on page 12, which is a right side, right? And she's still on the back of the motorcycle. He's still driving the motorcycle. And you can see a car with uh, Jinx parked on the bottom right. There's some inner uh, monologue uh sorry there's some narration uh yep. scarlet isn't usually so carefree it's moments like this that he tr- that he treasures all too rare in their line of work he would tell her how he felt if he could his voice is one of the many things sacrificed in service to his country nope he would tell her how he felt if he could it, like too on the nose too literal like <laughs> snake eyes can communicate he doesn't so by one sort of wrinkle, that bit of narration is correct. Like, he can't tell her, he won't tell her. But Snake Eyes does communicate. Like, he takes her hand, or he puts her hand against his face. We have seen this, right? Or in, uh, what is it, episode three of the animated series, in the first miniseries, when he's being exposed to the radioactive dust after the glass has come down, uh, and he he puts his hand up to the glass and Scarlet says he sacrificed himself for us. And then he like steps back until he's in shadow. And then, you know, he gets saved by the old wise man. Um, so I feel like this is getting Snake Eyes a little wrong. And while while I'm on the topic of getting Snake Eyes a little wrong, there are two places where Snake Eyes has a facial expression, which I don't really like. On uh, On page 38, Snake Eyes... Let me turn to it. Actually cut up little post-it notes. So 35, 36, 37, 38. Uh, on page 38, this is that same panel where the sushi delivery guy has uh, okay. urinated himself and, <laughs> and runs away. Uh, and I thought this I thought this joke was too cutesy, but maybe I don't know teen manga well enough. And maybe to your point, it's perfectly in keeping here. So the sushi delivery guy who's also holding a sword which uh, seems 
like I get I guess it's a prop sword, but like wouldn't a delivery person just have both of her hands free so they can hold the bag and take the money? Anyway, uh, so he runs away and then there's a there's a reaction shot to the four Joes who feel embarrassed that they just scared this civilian with with their guns. And Snake Eyes has this like disappointed, surprised, like wah, wah, uh face and it's like, nope. Nope, I don't want to. See, this goes back to sort of him being inscrutable. I don't want to see Snake Eyes make an expression. If you fixed his face, I want him to sort of not use his face. Like in the Marvel run, he would wear a mask that looked just like his face. And so he was inscrutable or he's wearing his black mask and you don't know what he's doing. And then this happens again on on page 77. This is when Kamakura shows up in this uh, little two-door car that he's put on his credit card. And there is this little like dinky two-door two-door car shows up and there's a reaction shot to of Snake Eyes, Scarlet, and Jinx. And Jinx is saying, um, and Snake Eyes has this smile. And it's like, wait, Snake Eyes, do you think it's funny and embarrassing that your apprentice got here in the most embarrassing way possible? Renting a car, an embarrassing car. Like, oh, don't do that. That's it's mean and out of character. Like, Snake Eyes should just have a straight face here. And then, like, Scarlet and Jinx can be like, Kamakura, you're here. Like, what a silly car. Or, like, is that your favorite car? Or, you know, whatever. (laughs) We skip past quite an important point that, that you mentioned about the link to the Snake Eyes movie, which is that the MacGuffin introduced in this book, the Jewel of the Sun Goddess. Amaterasu was the same MacGuffin in the Snake Eyes movie, Jewel of the Sun, the magical uh, jewel that the the main baddie is after that gives him uh, magical powers. And indeed, um, we we spoke to Josh Blaylock just before the film came out, and then shortly afterwards, um, he's followed up with an email, with an email sort of. Uh, expressing his surprise that uh, one of uh, one of his creations that only featured in this one little book, uh, literally little book, uh, ended up being such a large part of uh, this big blockbuster movie. Yeah, that's weird and disappointing and wonderful. Uh, you know, we we know that when uh, the movie people were getting GI Joe material from Hasbro before the rise of cobra it included sigma six and devils do stuff that the people who were developing and writing that first live action gi joe movie were not by any means like only looking at the sunbow cartoon or the marvel issues and uh so it's by one token surprising that sort of this like thing off to the side at devils do would show up in a later gi joe movie but you know, the way that movies get written and the way that like a movie treatment or story or a draft of a screenplay will have multiple lives or, you know, it's like, OK, this person has left this project. We're dropping the script. We're going to start a new script. I'm not saying this happened, but this kind of thing does happen. Right. So this person, you know, the the producer, the writer, we're working on this version of the movie. They left. We're dropping that script. We're starting a new script. But we actually do want to use one element from the previous script. So 
the people who wrote that script get their name on this new version as story credit, even though they didn't sit down with us and develop the new combined story. And so it is not surprising to me that uh, the people who wrote, I think there were three screenwriters credited for Snake Eyes. I don't remember. It's not that surprising to me that when they sat down to write a movie that wasn't too much about machine guns and like folks back at the military base fixing tanks, but it was in fact about ninja stuff with this clan in Japan, they grabbed up the ninja stuff about this clan comics. And and here's another, I think this one's really inadvertent. Here's another connection, or I should just say similarity between this OGN and the Snake Eyes movie. There's just a little bit of sort of the rest of G.I. Joe and Cobra making a cameo appearance here where we see in one scene uh, Zorana and Thrasher and Road Pig gets mentioned and then we see uh, Heavy Duty and it's like the size of my pinky fingernail. It might be Shockwave on the APC. Someone in a cap. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that in the Snake Eyes movie, we very briefly see, you know, one other Joe agent and uh, one other Cobra agent. So uh, I've been a little hard on this for uh, a few minutes, so I'm going to point out something that I really like. On page 28, there's a great sound effect (laughs) Uh, when Snake Eyes. Yeah, it's Snake Eyes, right? Snake Eyes smacks one of the bad ninja with his right hand and the sound effect is thrack and the K gets covered up by the hand and the ninja says, oof. There are a couple places where this feels like it's, it's lacking some of that sort of military combat fight realism that I'm used to in a lot of GI Joe stories, even the stories that are like all ninja action all the time. And on, on page 35, which happens just after the thrack uh, sound effect. The four Joes have tied up Soga in a chair and the apartment or condo has been trashed. And all four of them, Scarlet, Jinx, Snake Eyes, and Nunchuck, are pointing their pistols <laughs> at Soga. And they're all standing like six feet away from him. And it just, it just, it's just overstated. And I feel like if this is in Blaylock's script or, or plot, Lie needs to dial it down. If Blaylock left it sort of open and Lie draws it this way, because it's like, this guy's really dangerous. He just invaded our home. Um, and with, uh, and you know, we need to sort of keep him under, re- with a bunch of other ninja. Um, it's like, no, that's not what you would do. Like, no, he's already been tied up. Like one person would have their gun on him and the the sort of like everyone is amped up to 100 uh, percent, you know, and Scarlet even has her arm completely stretched out. Uh, and it it's 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 over exaggerated and sort of sort of breaks the illusion for me. Like, oh, this isn't what they would do. So this must not really be them. This isn't the like real Scarlet because Scarlet wouldn't do that. It's like, no, no, no what the what the line of dialogue rather than. Uh, moments later okay now that we're all comfortable start singing birdie no 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 you got him tied up i think the line of dialogue is something like uh snake eyes just checked those knots there's no way soga is getting out of here. or there's no way this guy is getting out of here now talk you know or like 
Like, we're putting our weapons away, but if you try and escape, we will cut you in half. It's like, this, like the gun thing is too much. Um, and then later on, on page, um, on page 64, which is, uh, which is on the right side, it's, um, this is the page where uh, the four Joes are looking up at a hole in the ceiling in the temple right after they've seen the actual two dragons with the giant, giant, like statue of the lady holding the the uh the jewel uh the sun goddess so on page 64 um nunchuck is pointing his machine gun up at the five ninja who are at ground level looking down at them through the hole in the ceiling and nunchuck is holding his machine gun one-handed and with his arm completely outstretched and that's not how you hold a machine gun and Yes, it's just like pretty nitpicky. It's like, oh, Tim, it's it's a ninja story. Come on, just turn your brain off a little bit and have fun. It's like, yeah, but it's a it's a GI Joe. I mean, it, you know, if you just took the word GI Joe out of this and put in any other like military term, you know, like Green Beret, Rashikage Showdown, or like Sergeant Rock Showdown in Japan, it's like, nope, that's not how you hold a machine gun. Because uh, you can't. Because if you fire it, it's gonna you're, it's gonna go all over. Because the recoil, like no, no, no. You need you need to put it against your your chest or your side, or you need your other arm. And in fact, the cover of this very book it demonstrates. Okay, if you want to hold a a machine gun with one hand, it's got to be a smaller machine gun like an Uzi. And that's what's that's what Snake Eyes has on the cover. I think it might be. Is it a Mac Ten? A, a Mac Ten. Sorry, I, I to to me they're interchangeable, and I, I apologize to. Uh, to people who like guns and and know the differences more. I like that all the Joes get into their Joe costumes. I was, and this happens on page 48. So about halfway through the book, I'd love to see them in costume for more of the book. It's totally reasonable that they're in their civilian clothes at the beginning. I was a little worried that they weren't going to get into their clothes at all, uh, their <laughs> costumes. And, and I want to go back to a point you made at the beginning. Part of what G.I. Joe is for me is the costumes and the color, all of the colors. You know, like issues of, you know, Wolverine, where Wolverine is just wearing like regular shirts and regular pants, and he's just being sort of an anonymous killer. Those can be great, but it's always a little thrilling to see him in costume. And uh, certainly when he's in Madripoor in, you know, the first issues of his uh, solo series that starts in uh is it 87 uh and he's like pretending to be patch where he's just like a guy right like in this asian city like it makes sense because he's trying not to be wolverine or because the x-men are thought to be dead in the continuity at the time um but even like even uh uncanny x-men 275 uh the double-sized jim lee issue just before jim lee leaves uncanny to, to launch like just X-Men, like adjectiveless X-Men number one in uh, August of uh, 1991. In Uncanny 275, on the cover, all the X-Men are in their sort of, quote, generic yellow and blue costumes. And that's cool because it's different, but it's like, no, 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 Wolverine's costume is cool. It'll never not be cool to see (laughs) Jim Lee draw Wolverine with his weird, like, fin mask, you know, like, Jubilee's costume, just her clothes, but like, no, no, that's fun. That informs her character. If if Jubilee is wearing the generic like yellow and blue thing, like please give her her earrings and her sunglasses. And 
let's say she's not wearing them. It's like, well, this could sort of be anyone. And so this book is a little less fun for me because there's no color. It's a little less fun for me because they're not in their costumes. And then to the point you made at the beginning, um, because there's so much gray in gray tones and there is no color, it gets hard to tell who's who. And so in the final battle, I was a little emotionally disengaged, you know, just sort of like, yep, someone's jumping, someone's kicking, someone's slashing. I bet the good guys are going to win in 20 pages when this is over. And that's where I come back around to wishing that uh, Chris Lye in his artwork and Josh Blaylock in his plot and his, his scripting could give more room and attention to more carefully choreographed fighting. And, and my sort of like proper example of this is page 101. This is on the left side. If you've got the actual book in front of you, the top two thirds of the panel are a big two thirds splash. There's no dialogue. It's just a bunch of ninja sort of it's, it's Jinx, Storm Shadow, and Snake Eyes sort of in the air, kicking, jumping, slashing, and some ninja all around them with some like burst lines behind them. There's no background. And then the bottom third, Jinx is saying, she's back to back with Storm Shadow, and she says, I guess we should have planned for an extraction chopper on the roof. What honor would there be in planning to flee? Sigh. So that, that top two-thirds uh, splash, there isn't much or any thought put into where everyone actually is standing and what they actually would new, would need to do, you know, placing this foot here and jumping off of this table here and turning and spinning and slashing this guy here, but also punching that guy there. It's just like, I'm going to draw a bunch of panels and pages of like jumping and kicking and slashing. And in most of them, the red ninjas are, or excuse me, the ninjas are being like parried or kicked or pushed away, or they're like slashing, and they're not going to connect, and so it's it's missing a lot of specificity. Now, as as a small counter, as a small counter, there is one panel which is exactly what I'm looking for, and that is uh, that's when Snake Eyes is in the stairwell. I'm going to say on that half splash that you were talking about, just to illustrate the point, uh, if you look at Jinx's sword, how it connects with the the enemy's sword it's sort of zooming out and, sort, and of sort of squinting it. at the page it, it you know it all looks all right but then you start looking at some of the details yeah it's behind it so it's it's not really practical about how you would be swinging a heart a sword and having it actually parried yeah and and i remember uh there was i remember there was this exchange uh between that guy who's written many 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 gi joe comics uh who knows how to hold a sword uh, and a guy who had drawn some very ninja-heavy issues of his G.I. Joe, uh, where Hama posted a pencil thumbnail or breakdown he did of a page where I think it's I think it's uh uh where Don Marino is sort of fighting four ninjas all at the same time from issue 250 of G.I. Joe. And uh and Hama says, I think this was a Facebook post, he says, I did this layout for the artist who ignored it and nitho diaz drew that issue and his version of that page is quite similar but he actually changed a few small things and i think hama really noticed that because in hama's mind it's like no no your like right foot is where your weight is and you need to be standing on your right foot so that your left foot can be a counterbalance and you can slash here and the artwork is very nicely drawn in the final page but you know diaz 
I think, looked at it and thought like, yeah, I'll do that and did like 85% of it. And Hama thought when he saw it, like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I was yeah. intending. Yeah, it's more specifically that, that, yeah, I think Hammer is focusing on like the physicality of, you know, what you would actually need to do for those poses, whereas Diaz is a bit more focused on what looks cool to, to draw. Yeah. And, um, and Hama has admitted many times in interviews that his, his style of drawing is not the popular, cool style of drawing, and he's also very focused on uh, storytelling. I do want to um, point out, because um, I'm being hard on Chris Lai here for the, the fight choreography and artwork, that five pages later, this is page 106, he does the thing that I want him to do. And there's this <laughs> really great, uh, it's slightly more than two-thirds splash page. I'll say it's it might be four-fifths slash page, splash page. Snake Eyes is jumping down in the stairwell and taking out four of the bad businessmen all at the same time. Snake Eyes is with his left, excuse me, with his right foot, kicking one of the guys in the face with his right hand, still holding a sword, smashing one of the guy's faces down in its steps with his left foot, kicking a guy in the face who is then pushing into the guy behind him. And in fact, Snake Eyes isn't even shooting any of the guys with his left hand, which is holding his Uzi. That's just firing up in the air. And there were some parts of this ninja getting out in the stairwell, which was a little a little underdeveloped. But I turned, I saw this page and I thought, yes, that's very specific. You know, it's, and, it, and and Blaylock's plot may have been like, make sure whatever Snake Eyes is doing, he's taking out as many guys as possible. Or it may have been, you know, sort of limb by limb, you know, like right arm up, you know, left foot up, left foot down, kicking a face, kicking a face. We haven't talked about, we've talked about sort of what the story is similar to and how it's, how it feels to have a self-contained story. Um, Mark, what did you, and, and how it's a certain feeling of story because it's manga. Mark, what did you think of the actual story that these Joes go there, we discover this thing about the clan, there are these other ninjas, there are these other ninjas, and then there's <laughs> there's a fight. What do you think about the story? I, it zipped along and I, I think I, I followed it based for, for the most part and, and yeah, enjoyed it. There, there were moments where I was, I was thinking to myself, "Uh oh, this is getting a bit exposition heavy. Am I going to have to pay attention to this? Is it gonna, is it gonna crop up later? And if I've not been paying attention, will, will it um, confuse me?" But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's, it's, you know, we talked before about kind of, you know, my favorite type of GI Joe and 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 sort of the pure ninja and more fantastical elements aren't the stuff that appealed to me quite as much, but yeah, I felt like it zipped along and the storytelling was for the most part clear. Um, there was a couple of bits where I had to pay a little bit of attention as to, to who's who, but, but so, so nothing was ever, you know, unsurmountable in terms of um, any confusion that I couldn't get past, but um, yeah. Bright and breezy, uh, a fun read. There was <laughs> there was one moment actually. There was one moment that sort of made me stop and go, "What what is going on here? Am I just am I just missing something?" And it's the moment where they're getting towards that that temple on the first bit of the the, the searching, and they've stopped in their cars, and um, and 
Scarlet says, you're not going to just leave your car there, are you? Jinx, why? You Americans are so paranoid. I'm always worried someone's going to steal your stuff. Says, don't worry, I've got it under control. Give us a second and we can go. And it looks like they are just grabbing, <laughs> grabbing like the grass on the floor, like the turf, and just <laughs> pulling it over the top of the car and the motorbike. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's not how grass works. That You can't just, you know, grab grab the floor and just rip it and pull it over like it's a duvet. What what's going on there, Tim? Did, um, um, I this is not what it is at all. I thought this was a homage to the amazing Chuck Jones Looney Tunes cartoon from 1952, <laughs> "Feed the Kitty," where the mean, the big mean dog, uh, Mark Antony, adopts this tiny black and white cat and thinks that the cat gets baked in a cookie uh, and. At I think the beginning and the end, when the dog is loving this tiny, tiny kitten, the kitten walks along the cat's back with its claws and then circles and then curls up and then nestles in and purrs. And Mark Antony looks at the camera and makes some amazing faces and then pulls a little bit of his own fur over the kitty as if it's as if he's tucking in the kitty sort of with his own back as a as a comforter or a blanket or a duvet um yes i thought i actually thought when that happened that i wondered if that was a, a little miscommunication between blaylock and and lie as if blaylock had written something slightly different and lie drew it in an incorrect way or blaylock described that and then like somewhere along the line, there's a word balloon that got dropped. That's sort of where someone's explained what this technology is. Like all I need is one balloon and Jinx to say something like, we left some fake grass carpeting here to hide our car. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of me following the story, um, I got a little confused at page 68 and 69 when Kamakura enters, when he shows up. Uh, so I'm starting from 64. That's the page where Nunchuck has his arm straight up with the machine gun. So 65, 66, 67. Okay, so 68. So someone's in the temple and they're looking up at the hole and someone says, are we just going to leave them here? And then someone else says, now we're up at, at the ground, at the surface outside, looking back sort of into the hole. And a word balloon trailing back down into the temple a cave says, uh, there would be no honor in killing them if they live. Uh, they, uh, they can live if they make it out of here before they starve to death. And then someone who's just made it to the top by climbing sees someone who's unconscious on the ground in the foreground and... Then there's a reverse angle and he looks up and it's it is Kamakura and the guy who just climbed out says, what the? And then you turn the page. So this is now page 69 and Kamakura kicks that ninja. Uh, this is where the sound effect is whack. But that ninja who just climbed out has been sort of white 
or very light gray. And because of the like shading in this panel, now he's dark gray. And then Snake Eyes is doing something. And then sort of the next page, I sort of had a hard time telling. So all of a sudden, Kamakura is now fighting a bad guy ninja who's in dark gray. And I thought the bad ninjas in this scene were in white. And so I got a little confused mm, about yeah. who who was fighting who and uh, and that Kamakura had showed up. And this is when I thought, like, that's not what this book is. This book doesn't want to be like a color three issue miniseries. This 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 doesn't want to be a twenty dollar f- like f- normal trim color original graphic novel. This book really wants to be a small manga quote original graphic novel. But I got to that and I thought, man, I really could go for Kamakura in his green and purple, and his Caucasian and his red tattoo, and then I would know that that's Kamakura because I have to think about it here. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you could you can chalk that a bit of it almost down to a coloring mistake that that this this a tone uh, a toning a toning yeah, mistake that that is just way too gray when when they've been established as being in in white and and this sort of just talks a little bit just of an over eagerness to to stick everything in gray <laughs> um, throughout the entire book. Having now read it, you know we we did sort of our top down. It's like in terms of marketing and readership, what is this supposed to be? What does this want to be in terms of, you know, fun and satisfaction? What is it when you actually read it? When I finished reading it, I thought this very much feels to me like, and Blaylock has said that his version of G.I. Joe, his Devil's Do, does continue the Marvel run, but incorporates the animated series. And when he did that, when Extensive Enterprises gets mentioned very early in the Devil's Due comic, I think it's even issue one, I thought, you know, this is back in 2001. That's cool because of all the things that Larry Hama is leaving on the table by ignoring the TV show. And he's totally allowed to ignore the TV show. Extensive Enterprises is like the one awesome thing that I wish he would use, could use, and we have seen so little of him taking on Tom X and Zamot that for me, Tom X and Zamot really are who they are in the Sunbow Marvel animated show and movie. When I finished this, I thought, this feels like Blaylock is writing an episode of the show. And it, it certainly belongs to the Devil's Due continuity, which belongs to the Marvel continuity. So it, it is like a comics thing. And there's certainly sort of, you know, more guns and injury that you'd see in the comic than you would see on the show but the the sort of the the gags that you refer to you know the sushi thing and scarlet being cute with the toy and the sort of like slightly science fictiony technology like the the grass blanket camouflage thing that on the show would just get invented and never explained because the show is much more sci-fi than the comic book and particularly the ending where I won't spoil it for our listeners, but the way that this magical ancient item is sort of dealt with at the end is, uh, in terms of narrative and Blaylock's writing, a little rushed. I felt like six pages before the end, I thought, oh, wow, like three things need to get wrapped up right now. And they all kind of did, but the ending of the, ending of the book uh, happened very quickly. But the like actual thing that, that happens involving the 
Jewel of the Sun Goddess, I thought, A, was a good ending. I thought Blaylock like, tied this off nicely. I was ready for this to have sort of not quite a satisfying ending or a dumb ending. Um, I like actually what happens to the, I have to look at what it's called, Jewel of the Sun Goddess. Um, but also it felt much more in keeping with the animated show. Yeah, and and I think I appreciate that this is kind of its own thing. You know, the manga digests so slightly off to one side of the main series that you can, you know, take or leave. That it, you know, it can be its own thing because of that. I guess more fantastical um, element. If it was part, if it was, you know, in color, printed as a normal comic book, maybe as a you know miniseries, maybe. Um, as you know, part of the the actual GI Joe run itself, I would be, I think, less receptive to that because I'd be like, yeah, I'm not sure that level of um, uh, you know fantasy lives in my GI Joe world. But you know, with it being to the side as its own thing, uh, I'm I'm a little bit more forgiving on that and go, okay, that's that's fine. This this you know, I'll give it a free pass uh, to to be its own thing and and do that sort of stuff i have another very quick example of how this feels much more like an episode of the show than either a devil's due issue or a marvel issue and that is on page 103 the joes need to get away the joe ninja need to get away from the bad ninja because a bunch more just show up and snake eyes points his uzi down at the floor and shoots it in a circle Uh and someone let's say jinx yells snake eyes what are you doing and so he uses his machine gun to cut a hole in the floor around him and over three panels the whole like he and the little circle he's cut fall down to the next floor of the building and then uh jinx says nice move and i thought i mean they're not that's you know they would do that in the cartoon or they're much more likely to do that in the cartoon than in the in the comic and and that's i'm not saying this is a bad thing i'm just observing it like that's okay Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. Uh, And I did have a favorite line of dialogue, which um, just makes me look like a jerk. Uh, (laughs) So I'll say it as a a joke. This isn't really how I feel. Kamakura says, uh, we really should have planned this better. Uh, Because (laughs) the, the mean version of Tim, the podcaster who trashes lots of G.I. Joe comics would be saying like, you know, fist shaking, like devils do. You didn't, you didn't plan this well enough. And I think this is a uh, fun object. And uh, I, it's, it's not my favorite Joe story and it's got some problems, but I very much appreciate the, the experiment and the format. And like I said at the top, because of what it is, it doesn't have to be my G.I. Joe everything. And so it can be someone else's G.I. Joe something. And uh, uh, and I, I wish I wish it had been a success and Devil's Due could have done a bunch more. And I wish, you know, because some of those I would have, they would have done them a little differently, you know, one versus the other. And one or two of them I would have loved. Shall we, uh, shall we give it a mark? Is that the next thing we do? Yeah. Yeah. Yo, Joe, Cola, not great soda it's yo joey so i'll give it maybe a 6.5 um solid i enjoyed it 
I went into it thinking that I was going to be disappointed or not not enjoy the experience and I came out of it um feeling quite you know satisfied that actually that was um you know that was a decent decent read and and quite a fun experience and not really anything in there that that I actually objected to too strongly to and and beyond that it was wasn't just yeah yeah okay that past the time it was you know it was a good read so uh, I was satisfied um so that's a that's a strong six and a half from me. I will give it a five. It's uh, it's fun. It's okay. Um, I would read this again, but it you know it it still needs a lot of um, it still needs a lot of developing in 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 art and story and. But I applaud the format and the effort. Um, you know what I think also at the time, uh, I'm sure at the time. I was wary of, quote, American manga, where someone not Japanese and not in Japan would write and draw a comic that's in black and white, that's in a manga style, and call it, quote, manga. And that always irked me. And I think in 2005, when this book came out, I would have definitely still felt this way. So I think part of my lack of interest at the time was that there was a little bit of this sort of fake you know poser quality to this like not that it was pandering well maybe that it was pandering but in the years since you know it's sort of like it's sort of like hip-hop you know it's like you don't have to be an american to make hip-hop and a friend of mine knows a lot about k-pop and he was telling me all about this band this k-pop band that is all japanese singers who live in Seoul, who record in English, and they have popular K-pop songs. And so at a certain point, one of these styles or movements becomes so big, it doesn't work anymore to restrict it only to its place of origin. And while I'm still a little less interested in, quote, manga drawn by maybe just anyone, as opposed to someone who uh, is in Japan, there are more and more people who can draw, quote, manga who aren't Japanese, and that material is popular and is selling. Uh, so I'm sure that in 2005, had we recorded this episode then, I would have said, you know, this is fake manga. It's not <laughs> fair. You know, like finger wag at Blaylock, you know, like this is pandering. But uh, I, I, again, I'll say one more time, I appreciate the effort to do something different. That's format wise. That's different. Very good. So I think we are all done with the uh, Rashikage showdown. Next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will be continuing our jaunt through the Devil's Due era. Uh, and I think the next comic that we will be covering will be America's Elite issue zero. But we'll probably linger on issue zero on its own and then maybe do a couple of issues at a time after that. Yeah. And then in other shows, just more fun and surprises uh, besides. Um, Tim, where can people find you when you are not talking about G.I. Joe to me? 
video essays on TV and film at our YouTube page, Atomic Abe Productions, my brick and mortar comic book store. Hub Comics is in Somerville, Massachusetts, and I write about G.I. Joe at arealamericanbook.com. Excellent. And you can find out more about Talking Joe at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has details of those places. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash TalkingJoe, uh, where backers like Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, Brian, and Shane are getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. Now, that is us done. Join us next time. Same ninja time, same ninja channel. But before we ninja out of here, Tim will remind us that... Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! A ninja to national podcast. And a Rashikage showdown! <laughs> a manga-sized black and white digest! Laters! <laughs> <laughs>